Good morning, church. The reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, chapter 5, titled, The Writing on the Wall. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father in the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. 
Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high positions he gave him, all the peoples and nations of men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. 
but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, passing. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of God. Well, morning, everybody. Uh, Gillian and I are very grateful for your prayers for um, Alice and Michael and the baby. Um, as you heard earlier in the prayers, his name is Hudson Levi Klopper. Hudson named after Hudson Taylor, who was the founder of the China Inland Mission, the man who took the gospel inland in China in the 19th century. And Levi, of course, is the tribe of Israel that is set apart for service to God. Uh, so that is the background to those names. Um, anyway, God willing, they'll be going home today, and hopefully there'll be a nice warm radiator to heat up the house. Won't you please have Daniel open in front of you, um, and uh, we'll be considering these two chapters side by side, and uh, we'll pray and ask for the Lord to help us do that. Heavenly Father, speak to us, we pray, through these ancient words, that they might be your voice to us this morning by your Spirit. So please speak, please help us to understand, and also to obey. Amen. <clears throat> There's uh, an amusing story of a ship uh, cruising along quite happily, when by Morse code, it received a message. Attention ahead, move five degrees east. Well, there was an, an admiral on board the ship, and uh, he wasn't used to being told what to do. And so he thought to himself, how dare this other ship tell me to move? So he sent the reply, you move, we will maintain our course. Uh, a few moments later, back came the response. Uh, collision imminent, essential, you move now. 
Well, the Admiral was seriously annoyed by that, so he responded, we are the flagship of the Navy, who are you? And a few seconds later, back came the reply, we are the lighthouse. This morning, we're looking at uh, two chapters in the book of Daniel, chapters 4 and 5, which have been very deliberately placed beside one another. They tell the true story of how two kings responded to God. Both were set on a course of proud opposition to God. Both receive a loving warning that they should change course before they're destroyed on the rocks of God's judgment. But only one king heeds the warning. The other doesn't listen with disastrous results. These two chapters, I think, come as a profound challenge to the assumption of so many people in the Western world. The assumption, I think, is that, well, if God exists, he's a rather weak figure under our control. It's entirely up to us whether we believe in him or not. In fact, we're really rather doing him a favor if we do. If we do, well then, we set the limits of his involvement in our lives. Uh, Sometimes it's convenient for us to have him around. Uh, We think he might be able to do us a favor of some kind. So we'll send up a quick prayer expecting him to come running, rather like the genie in Aladdin's lamp. At other times it's inconvenient for us to have him around, is going to be a challenge to the way we live our lives. So we move him to the sidelines and we carry on on the course we've set for ourselves. But Daniel chapters 4 and 5 remind us what a very dangerous game that is. God is in charge. His authority is supreme. He's the rock on which the whole earth is founded. And we'll either choose to build our lives on that rock as we submit to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, or one day we'll crash straight into it. That, I think, in a nutshell, is the message of these two great chapters. And we're going to consider three great realities that arise from them. First, we're going to consider the great sin of pride. Second, we're going to look at the great love and power of God. And then thirdly, the great urgency of repentance. So firstly then, the great sin of pride. Regulars here, I think, know by now that the story is set in Babylon. At the time, it was the greatest power in the world. And at the beginning of the book, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has already exerted his authority over the tiny kingdom of Judah. He's deported a small group of men to Babylon that he's grooming to serve in his empire, and included amongst them a Daniel and his three friends. And we've discovered that they are forerunners of the entire nation of Judah, who are going to be defeated shortly and taken into exile with those young men. But not only that, 
they're also forerunners of all Christians today. Because the Bible says that you and I are also in exile. We belong in God's new creation, his kingdom, that's our home. But for the time being, until Jesus returns, we must live in the Babylon of this fallen world. And living in exile raises a really important question. Who's in charge? It's a a profoundly practical question because the way that we answer it determines our decisions and it shapes our priorities. And in exile, as we look around, you know, it doesn't really strike us that God is in charge. There are more obvious authorities demanding our allegiance. Our employers require it. Our friends expect it. It matters enormously to them that we fit in and don't rock the boat. But God? Well, we can't actually see him. So surely, says the world, you can ignore him and set your own course through life. But the book of Daniel says that despite appearances, God is in charge. And that great truth is applied to believers in the story at various different stages. So cast your mind back, you'll remember that in chapter 1, Daniel refuses to eat the royal food. He says, okay, yep, I'll fit in with the culture to some extent, but there are limits. I will draw a line. So we hold our breath and we think to ourselves, well, what's going to happen now? Uh, Will Daniel be executed for disobedience? In fact, as it turns out, Daniel gets promoted. He remains physically strong. He's a terrific success academically. And that's because God is in charge looking after his people. Then in chapter 3, as we were reminded a moment ago, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, yes, we will fit in. We're not going to withdraw will even enter the imperial service. But there are limits. We won't bow down before that image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And again, we hold our breath. Will they get away with it? But God is in charge, and he rescues them from the fiery furnace. The message, I think, is clear to believers. Keep trusting and obeying, because God is in control. But if there's a message for believers, there's a message for unbelievers as well. Chapters 2 to 6 in the book of Daniel were written in a language called Aramaic. Most of the books in the Old Testament were written in Hebrew, the language spoken by God's people, the, the believers, the Jews, But Aramaic was the language spoken by the rest of the world, the unbelieving world. And chapters 2 to 6 were written in Aramaic with a message for the unbelieving world, urging them to repent. I suppose, in a sense, those chapters are rather like an evangelistic booklet. 
And it's very interesting, if you read chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 carefully, you find that the dominant figure in those chapters is not actually Daniel. In fact, Daniel isn't even mentioned in chapter 3. There's only one man who's mentioned in all four chapters. It's Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. And in those chapters, God is graciously teaching him. He's saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you might think you're the most powerful man on earth, but there's a higher throne, there's a greater king. So you might remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has insomnia. He's troubled by a recurring dream of a great statue with a head of gold. And the other layers of the statue are made out of different materials. And uh, besides this impressive statue, there is a little rock. One day that rock comes and it smashes the statue to smithereens. But the rock grows and fills the whole earth. Well, Daniel is able to understand the dream and he brings God's message to Nebuchadnezzar that human authority is given by God alone. It's finite. It's not going to last. And one day, only the kingdom of God will remain. Nebuchadnezzar is seriously impressed. At the end of chapter 2, verse 47, he says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. So at that point, Nebuchadnezzar sees something of the truth, but he doesn't submit So last week we came to chapter 3 where we saw Nebuchadnezzar proudly rejecting God. And uh, when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego disobey the king's command, Nebuchadnezzar says, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He's taunting God. So what God can? Well, the one true God can. And he does indeed rescue them. By the end, Nebuchadnezzar again is seriously impressed. He says no other god can save in this way. And he issues a decree that no one should say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So he's beginning to see the truth, but again he won't submit. Then in chapter 4, there's another dream for Nebuchadnezzar. We won't go into the details. But once again, it's a dream that his magicians can't interpret. Only Daniel can understand the dream because the Spirit of God is with him. And the dream is a warning that one day the great king will be humbled until he acknowledges the sovereignty of God. In spite of the warning, he still refuses to submit. He lives as if he is God. And then in chapter 4, verse 39, do have a look at it in your Bible, we read, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, 
He said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? They're the words of a very proud man. He is patrolling on the roof, surveying the city, and it was indeed a magnificent city. Uh, two of the wonders of the ancient world were there, the hanging gardens and the walls of the city. The city walls, we know from archaeology, were five, five miles all around. And on top, the walls were so big that a chariot with four horses could turn round on top of the wall without any difficulty. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks to himself and he purrs with pride, well done me. Look what I've built for myself and for my glory. The reality, of course, is that we can do nothing that God doesn't allow us to do because God is our loving creator. We owe our very lives to him. Every ability we have, every opportunity, every ounce of energy, every breath we take is a gift of his grace. So life should be lived by God's power for God's glory. But Nebuchadnezzar simply won't acknowledge that truth. As far as he's concerned, he's at the center of the world and he claimed that Babylon was built by his power and for his glory. God simply didn't enter his thinking. But friends, aren't we just the same uh, when we sigh with inner satisfaction and mentally admire our own achievements? Well done me for my academic results. Well done me for that successful career or business I've built. Well done me for the home and children we've raised. We've all done it. Perhaps we think to ourselves, well, yes, I suppose I have done it, but it's not very serious. There are far worse sins than that. Well, is that true? In his book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis has a chapter on pride. The title of the chapter is The Great Sin. And in the chapter he says this, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone knows when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly anyone ever imagines they're guilty themselves. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. End quote. I suppose if you think about it, when I look down on other people, I can't look up and see God. 
Pride puts me right at the centre. And if I'm at the centre, well, God is inevitably dethroned. It is the essence of sin. And it seems at this stage in his reign that Nebuchadnezzar was committing the sin of pride, if I can put it this way, relatively politely. He wasn't speaking arrogantly against God at this stage. He's even issued a decree that no one in his empire should say a word against this great God. He seems to acknowledge him to some degree at least. But like so many people today, he lives as if God doesn't exist. But Belshazzar goes one step further. If Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof of the palace, Belshazzar is in the banqueting hall. He's surrounded by a thousand of his nobles. It's a great feast. The wine is flowing. Spirits are high. And in chapter 5, verse 2, we read, While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. We're told Nebuchadnezzar was his father, but the word in the original can mean ancestor, and it seems that's the meaning here. As far as we know, there were two or three kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And it seems that Belshazzar was actually the regent ruling on behalf of another king. And that's why Daniel is told that if he interprets the writing on the wall, he'll be the third in the kingdom because Belshazzar was the second and there was another king ahead of him. So Nebuchadnezzar was the ancestor of Belshazzar and it was under Nebuchadnezzar that these sacred objects had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. To make the point, I think, that Nebuchadnezzar hadn't just defeated the Judean army, he's defeated the Judean god. Well, Nebuchadnezzar placed those sacred objects in the temple of one of his gods, suggesting that perhaps he was at least treating them with some respect. But Belshazzar shows no respect at all. He took the sacred goblets, he used them for drinking at a drunken feast, but worse than that, chapter 5, verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So, Sacred objects consecrated for use in the worship of the one true God are now being used in the worship of idols. It was a deliberately provocative gesture. It was as if Belshazzar was saying, come on God, what are you going to do about it? He was boasting in front of his nobles. Today, of course, there are plenty of people who openly scorn God. God is often mocked, isn't he, as if he were no more 
than a rather feeble grandpa. Uh, His name is frequently used as a swear word. His word, the Bible, is dismissed as narrow, oppressive, dated. Uh, His son is marginalized as simply a moral teacher who's now dead and buried, so we don't need to worry about him. And God is routinely used, isn't he, as material for TV comedy shows to be openly mocked and laughed at. I don't know, maybe there's somebody listening to this who recognizes something of themselves in Belshazzar, openly laughing at God, saying at least in their heart, what are you going to do about it, God? Others are perhaps more like Nebuchadnezzar, acknowledging that yes, there's a great God, only this God can save like that, so make sure you don't speak against him, says Nebuchadnezzar, and yet proudly he lives his life as if that God doesn't exist. In our different ways, we are all guilty of the great sin of pride. So what is God going to do about that? Well, that brings us to the second reality in our text, the great love and power of God. Friends, above all, the Bible is a book about God. It's not a book about me. It's not even a book about the great human heroes of the Bible. So don't read Daniel first and foremost to find out about Daniel the great man or to find examples of how you should live like Daniel. No, above all, the hero of the Bible and the hero of the book of Daniel is God. So a really, really good question to ask of any Bible passage is this. What is God teaching me here about himself? If you ask that question, you'll never go far wrong. So what is God teaching about himself in Daniel chapters 4 and 5? Well, he's teaching that he's very loving and he's also very powerful. His great love is seen in the amazing compassion he shows for two pagan kings. Uh, These kings were the chief enemies of his people in the ancient world, and yet God is really concerned for them and lovingly warns them to change course, to repent before it's too late. And his great power? Well, that is seen in the fact that God will not be mocked. If his loving warnings are ignored, the time will come when his judgment will fall. Those who reject him will be brought to account. Because there's only one sovereign ruler of the world. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not Belshazzar. It's the God who made the world and everything in it. Nebuchadnezzar had a number of opportunities to repent. In the first few chapters of the book, he's had several demonstrations of the power of God. 
And there's another one in chapter 4 with the strange dream. But it has no immediate effect. So there he is, strutting around on the roof of the palace, saying, look what I've done. Look what I've achieved by my power for the glory of my majesty. But then what God foretold came to pass. Chapter 4, verse 31. Look at that. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had exalted himself, so God humbled him. He had what looks to us today like a severe mental breakdown, end of verse 33, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That kind of behavior is not actually unknown to psychiatrists. They've given it a name, lycanthropy. It's a condition where a person is convinced that he's a wild animal and behaves accordingly. Nebuchadnezzar should have known better. Back in chapter 2, he'd had a dream. He's been given its interpretation. Human power comes from God. It's finite. It will come to an end. God's authority alone is ultimate and eternal. And now, those two great truths have been proved in his life. God gave him the authority in the first place, and now, just like that, he's taken it away. And God will only restore his authority once Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. God will not be mocked. And after God graciously restores Nebuchadnezzar's sanity, the final verse of chapter 4 drives the point home to you and me this morning. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, with those words ringing in our ears, we're meant to get the contrast when we read about the pride of Belshazzar in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He simply hasn't learned the lesson, the lesson of history, which he ought to have known so well. 
And how could he imagine that he'd get away with it as he takes those goblets and brazenly says to God, what are you going to do about it? Well, he didn't have to wait long for the answer. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Can you see that in a matter of seconds, this arrogant despot is reduced to a pathetic, shivering wreck? People today are often full of bravado in their rejection of God. Over the years, I've heard a number of people say, Simon, I don't need God. I mean, what's he going to do for me that I can't do for myself? I'm fine as I am. God is for weak people. And yet, friends, I've seen people like that whose arrogant self-assurance is shattered when they're confronted with a situation they can neither explain nor control. That maybe a special relationship ends, or there's a health crisis, or perhaps especially when they're confronted with the death of a loved one. You know, even the most powerful people look very weak indeed when the end of their life draws near. Well, Belshazzar finds himself confronted by something he can't explain, so he summons the astrologers. They're useless, of course. He gets even more terrified, and it's the Queen Mother who comes up with an idea. Scholars think she might have been Nebuchadnezzar's widow. And in verse 11, she says, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. So Daniel is sent for. But before telling the king what the writing means, he reminds Belshazzar of God's dealings with his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 18, how he'd been given sovereignty, greatness, glory and splendor. Notice, by the way, in that verse, those things had been given to him. But then in verse 20, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He lived with the animals until the end of verse 21 he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. And then comes the devastating comment, verse 22, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You see, friends, God is not hiding. He's revealed himself in creation. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, 
that God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what he's made. Now that means we should know from the world around us that there is a God, that he deserves our worship and our gratitude. And he's revealed himself, of course, supremely in history. In this fallen world, his authority has been rejected. But in the Old Testament, God promised his kingdom would be established. And there were flashes of light in those Old Testament days as God's kingdom was revealed and broke into the darkness. There have been several of those glimpses in Daniel already. But then much later, a man came and he began to preach, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. You see, God's love and power were perfectly displayed in Jesus. There's never been a more loving person than him. In his life, people saw the love of God with his infinite compassion for everyone. He even loved those who hated him. Father, forgive them, he said, for they don't know what they're doing. People that others rejected as outcasts because of their sin or disease, Jesus loved and touched and healed. God's love was seen in him. And God's power was seen in him. With just a word, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. And when he died on the cross, he was raised from death in the power of an endless life. Now, you can't have a greater display of power than that. God's love and power were clearly seen in Jesus Christ. So have you got the picture so far? We've considered the great sin of pride. We've marveled at the great love and power of God. And thirdly and lastly, notice the great urgency of repentance. Two kings in these two chapters, both guilty of tremendous pride, both receive a loving warning from God, only one repents. By the end, Nebuchadnezzar is marked by humble surrender. In fact, chapter 4 is his personal testimony. I think we can almost imagine Gift interviewing Nebuchadnezzar in family focus. He would say to him, Nebuchadnezzar, tell us, how did you come to believe these things? and surrender your life to God. And Nebuchadnezzar would reply, chapter 4, verse 2, Well, it's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Verse 3. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. You see, he recognizes the truth that God alone has ultimate and eternal authority. That's the theme at the beginning of the chapter. 
And it's the theme at the end of the chapter as well. Because the turning point comes in verse 34. The end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. You know, people say today, don't they, that to become a Christian, you've got to switch your brain off. You don't need your mind to become a Christian. But Nebuchadnezzar only came into his right mind when he recognized that God alone is supreme. For the first time, he recognized reality and saw the world as it really is. And then he praises God, verse 35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So at last, we see Nebuchadnezzar in an attitude of humble surrender. But sadly, Belshazzar, well, he's so very different. He's marked by continuing defiance. Despite the warning from history, he refuses to repent. And so God pronounces judgment as Daniel speaks to him and tells him what the inscription on the wall means. Mini, mini, tekel, parsin. They're units of currency. We might say 50 rand, 50 rand, 10 rand, 1 rand. Not surprisingly, the, the king is totally confused. What does it mean? But Daniel sees a pun behind the words. And the meaning is numbered, weighed, divided. It's God's verdict on Belshazzar's reign. His days are numbered. He's been weighed and found wanting on the scales of God's judgment. His kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that's what happens. Verse 30, chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. You see, judgment will come to those who proudly reject God's loving authority over them and live as if there was no God. So what can you and I take away from these two great chapters this morning? Well, for a start, encouragement for the faithful. Imagine those faithful Jews, generations perhaps after these events, struggling under the yoke of another pagan oppressor, maybe the Roman Empire. Might not look as if God is in control, but Daniel 4 and 5 remind us that he is. The wise way to live is to submit to him, whatever the cost. Is it worth living for Jesus Christ as Lord? Yes, it is. He alone gives authority and takes it away. Is it worth the effort this coming week 
to put Jesus Christ first, even if it means being scorned and excluded. Whatever the cost, it is worth it, because Jesus Christ is Lord, and one day everyone will know it. So it's an encouragement to the faithful, but it's also a warning to the proud. God is full of amazing love to everybody. He longs that human beings should repent. And he gives warnings time after time after time. Think how patient he was with Nebuchadnezzar. He had one warning after another. And the more I talk to people today, the more I see that God has also been loving to them They know that he's been warning them. Some of them might think back to childhood. They might remember warnings they heard at school or at home. They know there's a God who's calling them to put him first. Jesus Christ saying to them, trust in me, live for me. And maybe later they notice the stunning beauty of a a sunset And they have an overpowering sense that, yes, there really is a God. Or maybe they're stricken by some terrible illness or something catastrophic happens in their lives. They suddenly realize they can't control their lives after all. And something in them tells them that they really ought to be reaching out and praying to God. But again, they resist. Or maybe they see the life of a friend and they say to themselves, there's something different about her. In the language of Nebuchadnezzar, they recognize that the spirit of the holy God is living in her. And inside, they know, yes they do, that they should follow her example and submit to the Lord Jesus. Still they resist. You know, I've even heard people say, I believe it's true, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord, I believe he rose from the dead, and I've said to them something like this, great, will you repent and trust in him and live for him? And they say, no, no, I can't possibly do that. They're just not prepared to change course. They somehow think, rather like that admiral, that I mentioned at the beginning, that somehow God will move aside for their convenience. But he won't. He's the rock. His kingdom is absolutely secure and eternal. And one day, everyone will know it. In the meantime, we have a choice. Either we build on the rock which is Jesus Christ. Or one day, we will go crashing into him. But of course, on that day, it will be too late. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this remarkable story 
of your dealings with two proud, unbelieving men. Thank you that your, your loving kindness, which saved Nebuchadnezzar, is the same loving kindness that you show to proud, unbelieving men and women today. Please have mercy on anyone listening this morning who's still holding out against the reign of Jesus in their lives and bring them to repentance even today for it is in his name we ask it. Amen.